All right, good evening, Crypt Keepers, and welcome to another mysterious episode of Cryptique. I'm joined, as always, by a man who can read minds, but still can't understand rabbits. I know what you're thinking, Forrest, but why are you staring at the wall? Ryan, what's up? That's fair. For anybody out there who has rabbits like I do, you probably catch them just kind of eyeing you. <laughs> kind of a, a side eye thing. Mm-hmm. The evil eye. The bombastic I don't know. side eye. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yep. I know what they're thinking. They're thinking, I want to find a wire that is soldered in that cannot be replaced for the most expensive thing you have. And I'm just going to savor it. I'm going to wait until you're not in the room. Mm. Just like my surround sound system. We haven't had a surround sound system in a couple years. We're like, should we replace it? And then we kind of looked at them like, no. Nah. No, that'd be, that'd be wasted money. <laughs> I'll have to That's get a fair. wireless one next time. Yeah, or how long do rabbits live? <laughs> like 15 years. Do they really? Yeah, they live like, they live like as long as a small dog or a cat. I had no idea. Not in my yard, yeah. they don't. Um. <laughs> yeah, and actually, if anybody is listening to this and is considering rabbits for your kids, keep that in mind. Because there are places like the House Rabbit Society in St. Louis that take in a lot of them because mm-hmm. of that. Because parents buy them for Easter gifts or whatever else and don't realize, you know, they think they're like a hamster or a guinea pig, but they are not. Yeah. You know where you can find us. You can find us in the show notes. We're on all the major platforms. And all we really want is for you guys to share. Let us know what you think at crypticpodcast at gmail.com. And check out the store at crypticpodcaststore.com. There's some cool stuff that we have been releasing. And we're going to try and keep it up. You know, if we have a cool episode, a cool theme, maybe we'll put a shirt out. You never know, or or a sticker, or a beer mug, or something. So, yeah, keep that in mind. What are we talking about tonight? Sold souls. Those who have allegedly sold their soul to the devil himself to gain skill, power, and wealth. You can tell we haven't done that. (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, let's start off with Theophilus of Adana. The story of St. Theophilus... The Penitent, also known as Theophilus of Adana, is a significant tale that has historical and theological importance as well as influence on later folklore and literature. So, do you want to get into the legend? It's one of those things that's documented, but it's kind of, I guess, blurry a little bit maybe because it involves the church and they like to spin things a little bit so tell us about the legend theophilus was an archdeacon of adana sicilia in the byzantine empire during the sixth century he was elected unanimously as a bishop but declined the position out of humility however a new bishop was elected leading to theophilus regret seeking revenge and desiring his previous position Theophilus contacted a necromancer who helped him make a pact with Satan, renouncing Christ and the Virgin Mary in exchange for becoming a bishop. Odd. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if it's... It's like making a deal with the devil so you can go to heaven. Like, I'll do whatever you say, and you can have my soul as long as you promise I get to go to heaven. (laughs) Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's I see. I was gonna say irony, but that song has like kind of screwed up what ironic means. You know what I'm talking about? I unfortunately do. Yeah, because most of that is just. Yep, most of that is just unfortunate circumstances. I think the best explanation of irony I ever heard was from Frasier. There's an episode of Frasier where they're talking about... Oh, yeah. Big old <laughs> yeah, head. Yeah, rocking a skull at, and back in Cheers. I think it was that. Yeah, they were talking about that their therapist died. Like, they were going through a really hard time and their therapist died. And they're like, well, isn't that ironic? And they're like, no, it would be irony if it made you feel better. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. After realizing the gravity of his actions, Theophilus repented, (laughs) prayed for forgiveness, and fasted for a total of 70 days. The Virgin Mary appeared to him, granted him absolution, and interceded with God on his behalf. Despite his absolution, though, Satan remained reluctant to release him from the contract. Theophilus awoke one day to find the damning contract on his chest. He confessed his sins to the legitimate bishop who burned the contract. Theophilus died with joy at being free from the burden of this contract. So that's the legend. Yeah, so it's basically this dude sold his soul and then wanted forgiveness later. And I get it. It's the Christian way. It's what Jesus would have wanted, I'm sure. But the Catholic Church burned people and tortured people to death to get them to say what they wanted them to say. So I don't think that it's any sort of stretch to think that this last part is false, in my opinion, because it just doesn't make sense that, I mean, he would be a heretic, right? I mean, I'm sure that he's not the only person that, uh, you know, said what his torturer wanted to hear. Not that he was tortured, but you know what? Does that make sense? Like if they're torturing people and they're saying, no, 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 I, I, I'm all about God. I, yeah. Me and Jesus, man. But they still torture him to death and say they're heretics. But then this guy's like, I actually sold my soul to the devil. And they're like, well, just confess. And, you know, well, all's forgiven just seems like an odd ending to the story yeah odd story it made me think of the shmoo i don't know that one by al uh, the life and times of the shmoo by al cap from uh little abner anyway comic strip from the 40s the shmoo if any of you have ever watched um (laughs) lucky number 11 uh morgan free i'm trying to think of morgan freeman i don't know what i can think of his name Anyway, in the movie Lucky Number 11, if any of you out there have seen it, which if you haven't, it's so good. Morgan Freeman plays a gangster just called The Boss, and he talks about the schmoo as being kind of a solution to all of man's wants. But one of the things he says about the schmoo, which is true, if you look at the original source materials, that the schmoo uh, dies of ecstasy when looked at with hunger. Hmm. The schmoos are delicious and want basically want to be eaten. <laughs> anyway, him him being so happy that he died just made me think of that. <laughs> All right. So this story of Theophilus underscores the importance of 
having the Virgin Mary intercede in medieval theology, which I think we have seen that through the present times as well. But it served as a basis for later tales involving the conjuration of devils and the power of repentance and forgiveness. Theophilus's story played a role in the development of the theology of witchcraft, as it illustrated that summoning devils was not initially considered damning, but rather the sale of one's soul. So that's odd. So they're saying, am I understanding that right? That they're saying that, well, summoning devils, you know, that's not going to get you in too much trouble, but you just can't sell your soul. Yeah. Like kicking the tires isn't that bad, but <laughs> going through with the deal, that's that's a problem. Over time, variations of the legend emerged and it became an important theme in art and literature. In art, the legend of Theophilus was depicted in various forms, including illuminated manuscripts, stained glass, and sculptures, with scenes such as the sealing of the pact, Theophilus's repentance, the virgin recovering the contract, and her returning it to Theophilus. All right, well, we'll talk about some other people that have sold their souls, and we did a whole episode on Robert Johnson, so we're not going to do that one again, but after a quick break, we'll tell you all about Nicola Paganini. Welcome back, Crypt Keepers. Brian, tell us about Niccolo. Niccolo Paganini, born in 1782 in Genoa, Italy, was a renowned violinist. He began learning the violin at the age of five and gave public performances in Genoa by the age of 11, embarking on a world tour at 15. So kind of a prodigy. Some questioned if he had supernatural help due to his extraordinary talent. Legend suggests that his mother played a role in this belief, even summoning the devil to ensure his success. Paganini's remarkable abilities included memorizing music and lightning-fast fingerwork. Some speculate he had medical conditions like Marfan syndrome. And we know Robert Johnson had that too. Which made his fingers unusually long. And Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which made his skin flexible. Fame led to alcoholism and womanizing at a young age, causing physical decline. I don't know if comforting is the right word, but it's interesting to see that that happens in any century. Yeah. Rumors of supernatural encounters surrounded this person, including claims of doppelgangers and lightning striking his violin bow during a performance, which would be awesome. Yes. In his 50s, he faced severe illnesses and sought a priest's help, but ultimately passed away leaving some to believe in his devil associations due to his rejection of the priest's assistance. Yeah, so basically, somebody told him, like, hey, we're going to call a priest, and he's like, no, 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 thank you. So, we'll see. Uh, next up, Alistair Crowley, Crowley, I say Crowley. Um, I think everybody knows who he is, and we'll probably do a show on him at some point, but we'll just cover it real quick. Alistair Crowley, renowned as the leader of an occult group, had a unique upbringing. He was raised in a Quaker family 
and rebelled against biblical teachings. His strict mother labeled him a devil and accused him of Satan worship, leading him to adopt names like the Beast and the Antichrist. And I really, I mean, I think this guy's like just so much show, right? Like he's the the guy that wants to be known as evil and like putting his name out there almost like some rock bands do you know like they dress up like devils and say they worship satan he kind of reminds me like he wanted to be a rock star back in his day yeah what what we would call an edgelord today (laughs) edgelord could mean a couple different things but well okay He claimed that God and Satan contended for his soul as expressed in his book, where he pondered which of them truly represented God. Interestingly, Crowley's beliefs aligned with Quaker ideals in some ways. Quakers considered any self-centered thoughts outside of God as satanic. So we're talking pretty strict stuff, right? Like, oh, that's a pretty dress. Oh, wait a minute. No, that was an evil thought. Right. Like, I mean, this is almost cult like in its own way. And your silence shows that you agree. By this definition, even an ambitious scientist could be deemed (laughs) satanic. In his teachings, Crowley emphasized do what thou wilt, meaning individuals should follow their own path in life. He encouraged practices like yoga, meditation and goal-oriented sexual experiences within his group. (laughs) Do you know what that means? Oh, God, no, I don't. So... The mind... No. This guy says, when you're having sex, don't, like, focus on your partner, which I think people either tend to focus on their partner or themselves, but focus on something you want, right? So it's like... You're having sex and you're thinking about wanting to be the next bishop or, or mm. you know, whatever it is. So you focus on your goal and, uh, yeah. Fascinating. Who's next? Jack Parsons. He was born a few years after the Wright Brothers' historic flight and his childhood was steeped in sci-fi tales of space travel. At the age of 13, he made an unsuccessful attempt to summon the devil, hoping to exchange his soul for a real rocket ship, which unsurprisingly did not yield results. <laughs> However... That would be easy for the devil, though, if he was, like, you know, supposed to be as powerful as as he is. Just, hmm? boom, there's your rocket ship. Yeah, that could actually be a really good, like, monkey's paw kind of story, too. All yeah. the implications that might come along with it. Anyway, uh, his passion for science persisted and he focused on developing a powerful rocket engine capable of penetrating Earth's atmosphere. In his 20s, Parsons became involved with Aleister Crowley, because I'll say it the other way, and his occult teachings, <laughs> which some perceived as satanic. I, which is funny, because they perceived as satanic. I mean, he says, I am the beast, I am the Antichrist. It is mm. satanic. Sure. <laughs> he embarked on a significant mystical endeavor known as the Babylon working, aiming to invoke a goddess named Babylon to aid humanity in lunar exploration. Remarkably, Parsons made strides in the field of rocketry, inventing jet fuel that NASA still employs today. The question of whether he truly sold his soul to the devil at the age of 13, leading to his groundbreaking achievements, remains a matter of belief and interpretation. 
While his youthful ritual didn't produce the desired rocket ship, his subsequent contributions to rocket science and propulsion demonstrate his dedication to advancing humanity's reach into space. But I do want to step back for just a second. You don't even have to be dealing with the devil. You can go to any used car salesman and get the same kind of chicanery you would get from Satan, right? Now, what happens if you're 13 and you say, Satan, I will give you my soul if you give me a rocket ship? Well, then maybe Satan says, eh, cool. I'll keep this one open for about 30 years. I'll come and see you later. And then comes back and, you know, hey, here's your rocket ship. You didn't tell me right now. You didn't say within five years. You said give me, I mean, so that's how you end up with the uh, shitty Kia. (laughs) (laughs) Now, we mentioned uh, rock stars earlier and the idea of Mm -hmm. lightning striking your violin bow as being pretty dope. Who do we have next? Well, we have Jimmy Page next. Led Zeppelin's guitarist Jimmy Page held a strong interest in the occult teachings of Aleister Crowley, particularly the idea of focusing one's intentions on personal desires. And I don't think that's like inherently evil. I mean, I think we should all, in you know, going back to Crowley, yoga and meditation are good things. So I don't know. I know it was seen differently back then, but. Anyway, Page was so fascinated with Crowley that he bought his former residence at where? Loch Ness. That's right. Perfect timing. So maybe he conjured up the Loch Ness monster. Hey, you never know. This is cryptic. But Jimmy believed the house was haunted and shared stories of past deaths there and described strange sounds he encountered during his stays. These tales fueled speculation that Page may have made a pact with the devil, a notion common among famous musicians, like we said, your boy Robert Johnson, and then there's also a rumor about um, Dave Grohl. So maybe we'll get to that one one day. Rumors began to circulate, suggesting that if Page was a Satanist, the entire band Led Zeppelin must be as well. This gave rise to the myth that playing Stairway to Heaven backward would reveal demonic voices. So it's so easy today. You know, I just plopped it down in the production program, hit reverse and listened. And I could not make out any words. I know there's people that are like specialists and stuff like that. But one thing that I found is that everything played backward sounds demonic. You know what I mean? Yeah, it all sounds really surreal and otherworldly. Even just the like reverberation going backward yeah. is so strange sounding. Yeah, because we're not used to hearing sound travel that way. But mm-hmm. it's uh, there's no discernible words. But like I said, everything sounds crazy in reverse. These beliefs and associations between the band and the occult have persisted in pop culture, even though they may not reflect the actual beliefs or intentions of the band members themselves. I mean, Led Zeppelin, possibly the greatest rock band ever, unless you are you know, a big Beatles guy, they had an image too. And 
you want that counterculture image and and they may have yeah. dabbled they may have all been practicing satanists i don't know but i do know that that motif draws in younger crowds that are like yeah it's time to rebel against our parents and you know stuff like that so i think right. that we're really quick to label music satanic when people have been doing this for street cred basically for decades yeah i agree with that all right who's next so antoine rose or since we can't find a pronunciation guide or any examples of this being said out loud it could be like hermione so it could be antoine (laughs) but this was a single mother living in dire poverty and was determined to protect her son michael She recounted a harrowing incident where she claimed another individual, which she labeled as a witch, attempted to abduct her son in the dead of night, resulting in a stab wound in her arm as she fought back. Some witnesses reported seeing her invoking supernatural aid from the devil in her desperate circumstances. In her distress, she used an ointment on a broomstick, a substance known for its psychedelic and intoxicating properties once used by Wiccans to achieve altered states. This ointment could only be absorbed through the skin. In the year 1477, Rose found herself accused of witchcraft and subjected to torture, ultimately confessing to collaborating with the devil. And as we've talked about before, torture is such a reliable method for (laughs) gathering reliable confessions. This story, though centuries old, still shares some parallels with contemporary narratives of individuals facing poverty, addiction, and desperate circumstances. It also contributes to the enduring image of the witch on a broomstick, a stereotype rooted in historical accounts like this one. A lot of times in, you know, stuff that we cover, but also just stuff that maybe we don't do a show on, but pops up in the in the research is people like surviving extraordinary events like this uh lady was seen uh basically like they were trying to steal her son and she got stabbed and she fought back and good for her you know Mm -hmm. what i mean like mom power and then they're like oh well I mean, she fought off like three people and one of them had a knife and there's no way she could do that because she's just a woman and she must have been aided by the devil, you know, or or like surviving a car accident. Well, not these days, maybe a carriage accident or a horse accident, you know, like, oh, she should have drowned in the brook. She must be a witch. It's craziness. But Moving on to John Fian. All right. Next, we have John Fian. In the 1500s, John Fian, a young Scottish schoolmaster near Edinburgh, was a brilliant scholar who earned a doctorate in his early 20s. However, he lacked social skills, as academics often do, especially hmm. in courting young women. Wait, it doesn't say young. I'm making implications here. Especially in courting women. He developed an attraction to one of his students' older sisters and attempted to cast a love spell on her by bribing the student to bring him three hairs from her. Creepy. Instead, the boy brought him hairs from their family cow. (laughs) To everyone's surprise, (laughs) the next day, the cow forcefully entered the schoolhouse, showing affections towards Fian. (laughs) It followed him around town, drawing the attention of local authorities who brought him in for questioning. 
unexpected turn, wasn't it, Ryan? Under torture, Fian confessed to receiving magical powers from the devil. So, yeah, that's quite a leap, right? <laughs> that cow, that cow is like way too into you, bro. Yeah. They're going to torture you. The authorities pressed him to name other witches in the town, but he refused. Fian fell asleep and claimed that the devil had appeared in his dreams, warning against revealing more names. That night, Fian managed to escape from prison. Upon recapture, he recanted his confession, stating that it was obtained under torture. Duh. In a gruesome turn of events, he was subjected to further torture, resulting in multiple broken limbs that left him paralyzed. Finally, he was burned at the stake. This tragic episode is a haunting reminder of the dark history of witch trials and the brutality faced by those accused of witchcraft during that era, or those who might just have, like, a candy bar in their pocket or whatever else might make a cow follow you around. Well, that's pretty weird, man. That is... So, let's just assume for a second that these are all facts. My cousin had a cow farm in Macon. And I went out there as a kid, like to help him with some stuff, like one summer. And there were some cows that just—I mean, cows just follow you sometimes. There's oh, like, they, there's they are interesting going on. Yeah, they're like, what? There's a new person here. What is this? Yeah, yeah. I didn't get tortured or burned. <laughs> they are inquisitive. I mean, like they'll come up to you if you come up to the fence. A lot of times, uh, you know, just when they're sleeping. You know, they're not paying much attention, but I don't know. I mean, we're also talking about a school headmaster in a big city and yeah, that's a little different than what we're used to seeing. You know, we're used to seeing people that are kind of on the fringes of society to begin with that are being, you know, treated this way. But yeah, so be careful. But we're man. also thinking about a schoolmaster in a big city in the 1500s. Yeah. Cows were probably more common back then than they are. If you went to Edinburgh today, probably not that many cows. You might really raise some eyebrows if you're walking around with a cow following you. Dude, Scottish animals are like the coolest though, right? Like their their bulls are like shaggy and massive. Oh yeah. They have yeah, like yeah. these Hi giant horses and Yeah, Highland bulls. They're bad. Kim and I decided that if we ever like for whatever reason had a farm mm -hmm. like if if she ever convinces me to move away from populated areas and have some land yeah i would have one of those oh dude i got a guy let me know you got no, a highland bull guy <laughs> <laughs> you got a guy who can cast a spell for me so they just show up just open my window one night and there's this bull out there with like glorious bangs over its eyes <laughs> and he's like hey He's like, I heard you're I heard you're looking for me. I heard there's an opening here. Dude, here's the thing. Fifteen hundred Scotland, you get burned at the stake because a cow shows you a little affection. But mm -hmm. I've seen video from India of a woman breastfeeding a baby cow from a human teat. That's true. Strange. Philippe Moussard. He's our next guy. In the 1800s, the French composer Philippe Moussard, known for organizing grand balls in London, decided to return to Paris after amassing wealth from these lavish events. 
He arrived in 1832, a time when the cholera epidemic had gripped the city. Recognizing that people often seek distraction through festivities when they are fearful, Moussard hosted extravagant balls at the Théâtre des Varietés, earning him comparisons to the fictional Great Gatsby. The renowned artist Toulouse Lautrec attended many of these parties inspiring some of his paintings. Moussard not only orchestrated these parties for money, but also actively participated in them every weekend. That's a good gig, party thrower. Hell yeah. It gets old, man. <clears throat> As somebody who owned a bar, it's... Oof, gets I, old. I, I think this guy was amassing quite a bit of wealth. Mm. So it's a little different if you're, if you're bringing making in... a lot of money. Yeah, if you're raking it in from it and you don't have to be the one pouring the beers, mm-hmm. it's better. <laughs> it is. It's a step up. So he created group dances and lyrics for attendees to enjoy collectively... To classical music, such as the entertaining Galope Infernal, which can be found on YouTube and is still appealing today. And I'll play a little clip of that. It's actually pretty funny. He was also a musician and composed tunes for his bands to play, making his parties the exclusive venue for these unique musical experiences. So that's, you know, even cooler. Hey, I wrote this music for you guys. I'm going to get drunk and carry this turkey leg around with my three women. So play my music. Yeah, that I don't get to do. (laughs) In essence, Philippe Moussard lived a life devoted to hosting elaborate parties, earning him the title of professional party thrower. His portrait even depicted a demeanor suggesting he was often intoxicated or hungover, reflecting his relentless indulgence in the party lifestyle. Moussard seemed to embrace a hedonistic philosophy, living as if each day might be his last and displaying a dark sense of humor, which we love. And I know you've done this. Uh, He had his likeness featured on a candy bar at a local chocolatier, ensuring his presence would endure in case of his demise. Yeah, very relatable. (laughs) While Moussard's lifestyle was celebrated by many, it was deemed immoral and sinful by devout Christians who believed he must have made a pact with the devil to persuade quote-unquote good people to engage in such revelry. So this guy... You know, he got away with everything. They just basically accused him of, you know, making a deal with the devil because people decided that they liked to sing and dance and drink and... Yeah. Can't win, man. No, no. People are miserable, devil. If they're happy, devil. If you're happy. If you're doing things the way you want to do them, that's no bueno. That's right. All right. Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa, after a quick break. Welcome back, Crypt Keepers. Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa was a 16th century scholar dedicated to studying and writing about the occult. So you know he's got a mark on him. Like, <laughs> they're Dangerous coming for you, man. work, man. 
especially the name like Heinrich Cornelius. I think, oh man, I think the next dog I get, I need like a, I need like a Great Dane. I'm gonna name him Heinrich Cornelius. That's a good one. You know, yeah, if we had this podcast in the 1500s, we'd be dead already, for sure. That's how they canceled people back then. <laughs> in his works, he frequently discussed the devil and provided detailed explanations of how witches performed magical spells. And then that raises a question of how did he know this stuff? Well, he claimed that in his youth, he succumbed to the temptations of the devil and learned about magic by associating with groups of witches. However, he eventually found his way to Christianity, and through his faith, he believed he had saved his own soul. He authored his books with the intention of teaching others how to resist the devil's influence. During his lifetime, Heinrich authored eight substantial books on the occult. Remarkably, despite his open association with the devil in his writings, he was not persecuted or executed for witchcraft. So, hmm. write eight books about it, no big deal. Have a cow fall you around, big, big deal. It's possible that his writings were seen as valuable sources of information on combating the devil, leading authorities to spare his life in the hopes of learning more from him. Contrary to what one might expect, he did not promote witch hunts within the church. Instead, he advocated for greater sympathy and understanding towards individuals involved in occult practices. His goal was to help them break free of the devil's influence and seek salvation through prayer rather than resorting to brutal methods like burning at the stake or presumably other tortures. Yeah. In this way, you think the guy loved the cow back? Did they torture the cow? To, to break him anyway they, they and, had uh, blazed beef for dinner oh my god you're probably right With milk. in this way heinrich's approach <laughs> was more focused on spiritual guidance and redemption rather than persecution so that's <sighs> this this guy you know squeaked away you know what i would do and you know obviously this is quite some time later but if i was accused of cohorting with the devil and i remember in one of the stories uh one of the guys went to sleep and said the devil told him not to you know reveal any other names i would be like oh i went into a trance the devil told me that if you kill me he will take your firstborn child so that's the message i'm passing on you know what i mean like because play the role because they're going to torture you anyway you may as well be like yeah fuck yeah the devil's coming for your ass if you knock me off dog <laughs> got my <laughs> back off, dog. <laughs> yeah you got to talk like morty from rick and morty though <laughs> it's coming for you bro it's gonna be a big deal bro that's right all right do you want to do the next one since he's a frenchie or do you want to avoid uh oh i'll give it a shot potential... all right <laughs> we are talking now about father urbane grandier Father Urbain Grandier was a French Catholic priest in the 1600s who became involved in numerous exorcisms aimed at freeing individuals from what was believed to be demonic possession, which you all know well if you're listening to this episode. Typically, during these ceremonies, a priest would work alone with the possessed person. So that's not what we see today, right? It's always at least, you know, one priest that conducts the ritual romanum and then the other one you know praise our father hail mary's all that stuff 
So got to have your Shia LaBeouf to your uh, Keanu Reeves. Oh, I thought you were going to say Bumblebee. Um, Obviously, now we know that a lot of these are, you know, seizures and, and, you know, different kinds of mental illnesses and stuff. But they're still legitimate ones, I believe. When an exorcism failed, it was often attributed to the presence of an exceptionally powerful demon rather than, you know, the mental illness. Historical records indicate an unusually high number of alleged demonic possessions in the vicinity of St. Pierre du Marche Monastery, where Father Grandier was assigned to handle them. At the monastery, an incident involving nuns and a bouquet of roses occurred. After smelling roses, the nuns fell into convulsions resembling seizures. Instead of considering the possibility of poisoning or exposure to a neurotoxin, the priests attributed the events to spells. One of the nuns exhibited extreme possession-like behavior, prompting Father Mignon, a priest, to perform an exorcism with two witnesses present. When he asked for the demon's name, it replied, Astaroth and explained that it had entered the holy place through the roses, implicating Father Urbain Grandier. The truth behind this dramatic tale is that Urbain Grandier was indeed corrupt, but not necessarily in league with the devil. He refused to uphold the vow of celibacy and engaged in sexual relationships with nuns. It's possible that one of these nuns feigned possession as an act of revenge against Grandier for sexual assault or because her reputation was at risk. Grandier was ultimately convicted of witchcraft and sentenced to burning at the stake. So, no word on if he admitted and like begged for forgiveness or anything, but yeah, mm-hmm. so he was sent right to the stake. Following this incident, the Catholic Church changed its practice and no longer permitted priests to conduct exorcisms alone fearing that such rituals might inadvertently invite more demons instead of expelling them. So, probably a good thing anyway, but, you know, this guy had to burn at the stake, I guess, so they could come to that conclusion. Who's next? Gilles de Ray was indeed a knight who fought alongside Joan of Arc in the battle against the English during the Hundred Years' War. The two formed a close friendship... And uh, G here was rewarded for his service with the title of Marshal of France. Tragically, Joan of Arc was eventually captured by the English, accused of witchcraft, and executed by burning at the stake. Devastated by the injustice done to Joan, some accounts suggest that G turned to alchemy in a quest for eternal life. At this point, he was one of the wealthiest individuals in France, and tensions arose between him and the Catholic Church over his fortune. Mm-hmm. Rather than donating his wealth to the church, he chose to stage an elaborate play, employing local actors, costume designers, and set builders to recreate his glorious days of battle. The church officials were greatly displeased with what they saw as a wasteful use of his wealth. Because mm. that's their business, right? Yeah. What you do with your money. Consequently, yeah. they accused him of being a serial killer, practicing alchemy, and engaging in satanic worship. Gilles de Ray was put to death, and upon his execution, the Catholic Church seized control of his assets, including his money, castles, plural, and land. (laughs) This marked the unfortunate end of the life of a once-revered military figure who fought alongside a historic figure that everybody listening to this would know by name. 
Yeah, Saint Joan, right? <clears throat> so she was made a saint, and they lied about him, killed him, and took all his shit just because mm-hmm. they didn't like what he was doing with his money. Let me tell you something, Ryan. I think I've talked about this before, and I know I talked about it with Michael Cremo. When I go into not necessarily every Catholic church, but the bigger Catholic churches, the cathedral and stuff, it looks like Gucci designed, did their interior decorating, (laughs) right? Yeah. There's precious artwork. There's beautiful painting, you know, on ceilings, on walls, marble everywhere, gold. It's ridiculous. But he didn't want to donate it to the church so they could do that. So they killed him. That's tough, man. That's tough. Mm -hmm. All right. This guy is awesome. Giuseppe Tartini. Giuseppe Tartini was an Italian violinist and composer in the 1700s, renowned for his contributions to classical music. One of his famous compositions is Devil's Trill Sonata. Play a little clip of that for you. However, the story behind this piece is often shrouded in myth and legend. The tale associated with the Devil's Trill Sonata is that Tartini claimed to have a vivid dream in which he made a pact with the devil. Don't even want to say you have a dream about making a pact with the devil. In this dream, Satan played the violin with exceptional skill, leaving Tartini awestruck. After this dream, Tartini was said to have been inspired and possessed the ability to perform extremely complex trills on the violin, which are difficult for most musicians to achieve. When you hear the clip I played, you can understand how it would be extremely difficult. From my understanding, a trill is when you kind of wave your finger back and forth to achieve kind of a vibrational sound. Like you're you're playing the same note, but the note, I guess, kind of oscillates a little bit. And... To play one is one thing, but to play, you know, three or four at the same time, it's tough. But yeah, Devil's Trill Sonata, it's a, a an amazing work. So, and, and not many people, I think, even attempt to play it. But you want to tell us about Faust? Sure. <clears throat> Although we do know how this, uh, this Tartini thing ends. The Devil Meets Johnny. When he went to Georgia? You think so? He got whooped. Oh, yeah. The Legend of Dr. Johann George Faust is a well-known tale, relatively, from the early 1500s in Germany. According to the legend, Dr. Faust was an alchemist and astrologer with a burning desire to become the most knowledgeable and experience all the pleasures life had to offer. In pursuit of his ambitions, he supposedly made a pact with a demon named Mephistopheles. Historical records suggest that Faust engaged in inappropriate conduct, including alleged acts of abuse and mistreatment towards his male students. 
As a professor, he held himself in high regard, considering himself intellectually superior to others. I'm sure none of you have professors that that you think that of. Uh, Local priests and the community believe that Faust was involved in dark practices and consorting with the devil. Some even thought that his pet dog was a demon capable of transforming into a human servant. Faust's beliefs in the supernatural are evident from his publications of several grimoires, which are books containing magical spells and incantations. What are you laughing at? Are you thinking about how dope it would be if your dog could, like, grab you a beer? Well, no, you could train a dog to do that. What I think is uh, funny is that the demon becomes a human servant. Like, I don't see a demon being like, hmm, okay, I'm going to transform into a butler and take care of your Mm -hmm. ass all day. You know, yeah, you know? like Niles from the nanny or something like that. Something like, oh that. yeah, sir. Let me just let me dust around you real quick, and I'll be out of your hair. The legend concludes with Faust's death in 1540 during an alchemical experiment when his laboratory exploded. Boom. But we can get on to Jonathan Moulton after a quick break. Welcome back, Crypt Keepers. Jonathan Moulton was often referred to as Yankee Faust. He was initially a poor apprentice to a cabinet maker and switched careers to become a professional silversmith, amassing wealth by trading with England from the American colonies. He also served as a brigadier general for New Hampshire and led a successful battle during King George's War. According to the legend, Moulton made a deal with the devil over shots of rum offering his soul in exchange for gold coins filling up a large pair of boots each month. Moulton cunningly cut holes in the boots to drain the gold coins into his basement, angering the devil. So basically, this dude, first night, gets these pair of, like, thigh highs, right? Like he raids Pretty Woman's (laughs) closet and stands those up on his porch, and the devil laughs because he's like, yep. Didn't say how big the boots could be. And then the next night he's like, wait a minute, I'm going to cut a hole underneath them and the devil's going to fill up my whole basement with gold coins until these boots are filled. So, you know, it seems uh, just the type of thing someone who would make a deal with the devil would do, right? Absolutely, yeah. In retaliation, the devil set Molten's house on fire, leading to the legend's propagation through generations. So some historical facts. Jonathan Moulton did earn a veteran's pension for his service during King George's War and amassed wealth through his silversmith business. And basically, he was getting rich and people didn't like it. So they made up a story about him, you know, making a deal with the devil. And then, you know, he was loyal to the British crown during the Revolutionary War Obviously, that's going to make you unpopular. Yeah, not a a popular position to hold. Yeah, the kind of uh, position where someone might light your house on fire. Tell us about the next guy. Christoph Heisman, which for some reason I want to yell. The story of Christoph Heisman is kind of an unusual (laughs) historical account. 
1677, Christoph, an artist from Bavaria, was renowned for his exceptional painting skills and had earned commissions from noble patrons. However, his life took a dramatic turn when he began experiencing seizures, which were attributed to possession by the devil. People believe that he had made a pact with the devil in exchange for these artistic talents. Christoph eventually confessed that nine years earlier, at the start of his art career, he had indeed entered into a pact with the devil. Mm. He now deeply regretted it and sought an exorcism to rid himself of the devil's influence. While the local authorities determined that he was not a practicing witch, they did believe that he was under the devil's control. A compassionate local Catholic priest performed exorcisms on Heisman, or Christoph, since I keep, I guess we're on a first name basis, I keep calling him that, <laughs> witnessing the artist's weakened physical state. During one of these exorcisms, Chrissy Boy claimed to have had a vision in which he confronted the devil, appearing in the form of a dragon clutching the contract to his soul. He managed to tear the contract away from the devil's grasp. Upon waking from this vision, he found himself cured of his ailments. Following this transformative experience, he began painting pictures that depicted his encounter with the devil and his journey to reclaim his soul. These paintings told a multi-panel story narrating how he sold his soul and how the Catholic Church had aided him in its retrieval. So we will get to you with some final thoughts after a quick break. Welcome back, Crypt Keepers. So the devil wins, right? In all these, not all of them, but in a lot of these stories and the ones where people were put to death, God-fearing Christian people did the devil's work on two ends. Most of the time, it was other people that were jealous, but you know, claim to be good Christians that were like, oh, these guys obviously made a deal with the devil. And then other good Christians were like, oh, well, then we've got to kill them. So, boom, devil wins in all these, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Innocent people are being put to a horrific death by people who claim to worship God and Jesus and Mary. So... What's your final thoughts? Yeah, I think uh, somebody was jealous of the relationship that schoolmaster was forming with the cow. <laughs> and they sought to break them up permanently. I was just going to say, I think it would be cool, right? Like, hey, you know, Mr. So-and-so's class is uh, a little more fun than others because there's a cow that chills in the room. You know, every time you go into a business or anything and, you know, you see a cute little dog there and it's like, oh, the dog comes to work. And, you know, that's that's cool. Like it's it's a way to engage people. You know, it's a way to Mm -hmm. uh, break up the monotony a little bit and make things a little bit fun. Hey, this guy's got a cow in his class. If I get stressed out, I go pet the cow. It's great. I don't know. I think you're right. I think that if there's influence on this, it's probably by the people. It's probably on the people who are making the accusations. Yeah. It's sad. Yeah. And, you know, we see the the same thing today where, 
it's not necessarily God and religion, but people are, everybody's branded, right? Like if, if we tell somebody we believe in small government and we want to do away with as much tax as possible, then we're also labeled as gun nut Trump supporters. And yeah. if we say, you know, this is is wrong too. You know, you, you say that this person who might just be a little bit left is a communist socialist. And it's like, people are just people, man. And, and I don't think that like branding someone as as one thing or the other is okay because it's the same thing that was done to these people you know yeah, like it's not oh, constructive exactly it's divisive and mm-hmm. divided people are easy to conquer ryan yes indeed all right that's all we've got for you tonight tell them what they need to know we want to hear how you've been persecuted or about deals you've made or about that special cow in your life, particularly if it's a Highland bull. That'd be very cool. Send us some pictures. You can send all that over to crypticpodcast at gmail.com. You can find the merch collection Jay's been working on at crypticpodcaststore.com. And you can check out all of our socials to see what else we're up to. All right. Well, we'll skip the catchphrase for tonight, guys. Uh, be be sure to check out the after party because we are going to tell you a story about a woman who was murdered and came back to solve it through possession. Good evening, Crypt Keepers. 